Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundation's podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be focused on scientism, kind of wrapping up some thoughts on that and getting into the idea of technocracy. So my plan, at least right now, is to cover some things that I did not get into about scientism last week and then get into a lot of quotes, really, to give a background and give an explanation for what technocracy is, where it came from, where it's headed, that type of thing, to give you a bit of a foundation for diving into that as a concept as a whole. So to state the typical disclaimer, this is part of a series on secular religion within a season of this podcast. This is season three, and within season three, this is a series on secular religion. So if you are new to the show, go back to the beginning of this series, or ideally the beginning of the season, or ideally episode number one, because all of this stuff does build. But assuming you are where you want to be or need to be, I will continue. So picking off with last week's episode on scientism, I did finish talking about the religion of scientism, why it is a secular religion and what that means. But there is one big part that I left out. There's one part that I hadn't really, I guess, fully fleshed out and thought about and was not included that I think is pretty important, so I will include that here. This is also another example of how you should be listening to all of the episodes, and you should have gone back in the backlog of previous episodes because I did discuss the is-ought problem a while back, this came up in the interview I did with Vin Armani, and then in the elaboration episodes in between those, at some point, I covered it with a little bit more depth. But that is something that really comes up. So let's just do a quick recap. Scientism is a secular religion. Scientism is different than science itself. So by definition, science is something where you propose a hypothesis you test that hypothesis objectively, you look at the data, and that tells you something. That is the process of science, that is the scientific method. That is different than scientism. Scientism would be something that would follow, quote, the science, and that is different than science itself. And I didn't really highlight what I should have, I believe, in why this is and what this is. So this is where the is-ought problem comes back into play. The idea with the is-ought problem is that you have two things when you're dealing with an issue or a concept. You have what is, and you have what ought to be or what ought to be done with the is. So you have the what and you have the why. These are two different things. With science itself, you can definitely determine the is of a thing. It is very effective at determining facts, understanding how things work, predicting outcomes, things of this nature. Science does not, however, have any answer for the question of what ought to be done. So science is really good at the is, but it does not include the ought. You can determine something, you can come up with data, you can determine whether a hypothesis was true or not, but you cannot determine whether that hypothesis is something that was good or bad, or what you should do with the data that you found. These are different things. So a value system or an ethical framework must be implemented in order to take the is and determine the ought. 
when it is said, quote, the science says, or, quote, according to the data, we should, it's not the science that is being referenced, not science itself, but rather the underlying value system. It is the ought that's being described, which is different than the is that science can determine. Is the goal of a society the longest life possible or the fullest life possible? Should the individual be prioritized or the collective? Is there a point when life should be forcibly sacrificed for the sake of other life? Should humans sacrifice for the sake of nature? All of these are matters of ought. These, regardless of which side you fall on any one of these, these cannot be determined by science. These are not matters of is. Even if, through scientific study, we find that a certain course of action would likely result in fewer human deaths given a particular situation, that doesn't in and of itself tell us what we ought to pursue and whether or not we ought to pursue a particular action. Maybe the decrease in death comes at the cost of human dignity and free will. Maybe it comes at the cost of sacrificing the weakest minority in the society. We need to have a value system to determine the ought, not strictly science alone. So we cannot tell by science if it is more important to hold up the life and the length of life of people or the quality of life. These are two separate things, and science cannot determine which one is better, which one is the goal that we should pursue as a society. This is an ought. This is where the value system comes into play. Science itself delivers knowledge and knowledge abundantly, but knowledge and wisdom are very different things. I've talked about this in the past when I talked about the Greek view of wisdom and the theology of the early church, these types of things. Wisdom is something that involves the understanding and application of knowledge. You have knowledge, you have data, you have information, but you need to do something with it. Again, you need to apply the ought. Biblical wisdom, again, we're going back to this parallel with the early church. So from their view, biblical wisdom is often contrasted with worldly wisdom. Either wisdom could be applied to science because science is an is and not an ought. So there have been times in history when the vast majority of science was done from a Christian perspective in order to better understand God's creation. There are other times when the vast majority of the scientific field involved trying to explain away biblical meaning through a deeper level of understanding of the natural world. Scientism is an atheistic religion. Its God is knowledge, and its wisdom is that of the world of darkness, going back to this idea of the dark and the light and the natural order, again from previous episodes. Scientism would say that all reality needs to be accounted for and understood. Now, this should ring a bell for those that are familiar with Jonathan Paggio's work on the Mark of the Beast and the Book of Revelation. This is part of that number 666 and this pattern that is expressed in the Book of Revelation. It is this desire to account for everything, to account for all the margins, to bring everything within the dominion of mankind, to be able to know it all, not to have any more mystery or anything on the outside, but to be able to account for it all. And this is what scientism seeks. As adherents grow the knowledge that they get, 
they grow closer to their god, because, again, the god of scientism is knowledge. It is science, so to say. And as they learn to focus their understanding through a lens of worldly wisdom, they move further down the path of the perfection of the species, because this is their goal. The species has no higher meaning in relation to an all-powerful god. Again, this difference between a biblical um, worldview, between a biblical wisdom, or even just a religious wisdom. This would go for many religions, but since we're talking about the early church, I will use the biblical one. But the difference between the biblical view and an atheistic view would be that through the biblical perspective, the human race does have meaning. We have purpose. We have reasons for being here. We have value. And that is not, again, something that can be determined through science. You can't determine that based on a study or based on facts or data. That's not how the ought works. But they do need an ought. So what they do is they take the most basic thing that they can get. That would be the human species. It does exist. Therefore, we want it to continue to exist. And in order to continue to exist, we need to do what's best for the species as a whole. That is more along the lines of their train of thought. So the meaning of humanity, according to scientism, is simply to live. The more the species learns and understands, the longer and more easily that it can live. Keep in mind that through, that though this is not the same as the natural order principle of life, it is similar. So with the natural order, life is something that is more universal. The life that scientism seeks is not universal and all-inclusive. It is exclusive to the self and to the best of the breed. So my life is what is valued above all else. The lives of others will be used to satisfy the demands of my life first and the best in breed second. So again, what's best for the human species? Well, what's best is that you have the best of the human species continue and thrive and grow and breed. And so you have a better species in the end. That's how you treat any other animal. So they apply the same scientific viewpoint to humanity and this is the result. Again, I've done plenty of work on eugenics, and this is the same idea. Again, nothing new under the sun, but this is the way scientism works. I believe that I've covered most everything else I have in the last episode, maybe also the one before that. I don't know how many I've done on scientism or included scientism in, but there are some quotes that I wanted to pull out from Henry de Saint-Simon, and these are uh, quotes that are specifically about scientism. Many people credit him for being kind of the author of this religion of scientism. So he said at one point, quote, Today, for the first time since the existence of societies, it is a question of organizing a totally new system, of replacing the celestial with the terrestrial, the vague by the positive, and the poetic by the real. Another quote, quote, True equality consists in each drawing benefit from society in exact proportion to his social outlay, that is, to his real capacity, to the beneficent use he makes of his abilities. And this equality is the natural foundation of industrial society. Next would be, quote, A scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees. 
it is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful and the scientists are superior to all other men. So again, he and he actually does talk about scientism as a religion specifically. I couldn't find any good quotes on that, so I didn't include them. But this is not something that is separate from me talking about scientism as a religion. He also talked about it in those terms. So he did talk about how he's replacing the celestial with the terrestrial. This is the idea of replacing religious wisdom, biblical wisdom, with worldly wisdom, something that is concrete, that is cold and hard and fact-based, replacing the ought with the is. And he talks about true equality is that you get what you deserve. You get what you put into society. If you put in a certain amount, you get that same amount back or the equivalent of that in whatever form it may be. This is the way it is. It's very simple. It's very fact-based. It is logical, but it is not an ought. It's not that, hey, we need to take care of those that are in need that can't provide for themselves. It is this idea that everyone will be provided for according to how much they provide to society. In the final quote, he does talk about how a scientist is superior to all other men. Well, that is the view of scientism. That is why the scientists are the experts, the priestly class, the ruling class. And it's not just scientists per se. It's it's everyone involved in the sciences. So it's engineers and scientists and people of that nature. You could look at the medical establishment as being in this vein as well. And he talks about how a scientist is a man who foresees and that it is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And so the idea here is that you can look at data, you can look at information, you can look at things through a scientific perspective, and you will be able to tell the future. You'll be able to predict things. It will give you more knowledge and knowledge about things that haven't even happened yet. You can tell the future through being involved in this religion and in its practices. If you stick to the religious texts and you follow the priestly class and you do all of the things, if you're a good member of this religion, then you will be able to see into the future. And that's a good thing, according to them. And that is why, he says, a scientist is, or that's actually why science is useful, is because it predicts the future. So it's not just that science produces knowledge, period, knowledge of what exists or what has existed in the past. Knowledge provides, or science provides the knowledge of what will happen in the future as well. It's past, present, and future. But it is all science. It is all knowledge. That is the goal of scientism. Now I can move on from scientism to technocracy. Now, this is technically shifting us out of this series on secular religion and into another mini-series, so to say, on technocracy, because this will be a series in and of itself. And I hesitate to put it all in one episode and combine them like this. I wasn't planning on it, but uh, hopefully you would agree that the things I have said thus far are worth me saying. And so it was good that I included those and didn't just jump right into technocracy. But let's get into technocracy now, and we can move from there. Again, most of this will be quotes. And ideally, and I know this is good and bad, but ideally, this episode in particular will be nothing but quotes, will be nothing but me reading all of these things. 
um, after after I have a bit of commentary, of course, and hopefully that'll wrap things up. And that way, in the next episode, I can then get into more about it and get into more depth and go into what I want to get into after overlaying all these things. Now, all of these quotes and all the things I've pulled are very important. They're very interesting, and they're very enlightening. So they are definitely worthwhile, and that is why I'm including them. So to kind of tie these things together, these secular religions that I've recently done a series on, specifically statism, scientism, and the Church of Woke, they are not altogether separate. This is also how the early church would have viewed the culture of Rome. They would have looked at the immorality in the culture. They would have looked at the corruption of the state. They would have looked at the corruptions within the institutional religion of their day and viewed it all as being under the dominion of the adversary. This is all uh, under the category of, quote, the world. And the world is corrupt. It is evil. It is wrong. It is, it is immoral. So even though the world is made up of these different institutions, these different groups, these different things that you see and interact with within your society, within reality, these are all under the dominion of one God. It is one system. It is one thing. And that God is the adversary. It's not the most high God. That is how the early church would have viewed these things. And again, we can make a lot of use from looking at their perspective and applying that today. When we apply that same perspective, that same worldview today, you could say, if you want to stick very closely to it, that the adversary would be the one in charge of statism, the Church of Woke, as well as scientism, and all of these things within our current world. Our world is made up of all of these worldly things, and that is separate from what would be moral and godly. But if you want to go for a secular interpretation and overlay, we would just say that these secular religions are not altogether separate, that they have similar goals, that they do work together, that they are pushing forward a certain agenda in a certain direction, and these are things that are being done in concert. They are working as one loose entity, just like I've talked about how there is a system of oligarchy that has a lot of control and power in our current world, and it's not that each one of the oligarchical institutions or players are doing the exact same things. It's not that they have the exact same goals. It's not like they're all in concert together, intentionally discussing these things and laying them all out to the benefit of every one of them. It's that they are competing, but they have general goals that are the same. They are pushing society in general directions that do benefit them all. So they are different, but they are also part of the same group, so to say. So from a human, secular, worldly perspective, the uh, systems here, these secular religions, they come together to form a system of synthesis. This system is the modern version of Smith's technocracy or Plato's Republic. Again, I did those episodes on William Henry Smith and uh, Plato's Republic, and this is the system that comes out of these secular religions. It's the same in Plato's day as it was in Smith's day in the early 1900s as it is today. It is the same thing. It is not a political or outright religious system, but it is a governance system that does mesh with these secular religions. Scientism that we have just covered would provide the goals and tools for the technocracy. 
the Church of Woke provides the morals, the propaganda, the psychological manipulations, and the unity as a whole as a social body. Statism provides the vehicle enforcement and institutional model. These all work together. Since these are not merely passing movements, but rather secular religions, they have the ability to control and steer a society with nearly full support from the population, because this is a population made of people who are a part of these religions, and therefore what these religions do get the support of the population. This is the idea of control without control that William Henry Smith talked about a lot that was a very effective thing to have in place and a very needed thing if you want to push society in a certain direction. And his direction was technocracy, and that is the direct um, thing that I am talking about here, this concept. The concept of technocracy has been evolving over the years. So this is not something that is constant. Again, Plato talked about it. William Henry Smith talked about it. You had the official technocracy movement in the 30s and into the 40s. You have the modern technocracy that's uh, taking place in a visible form through things like sustainable development and smart growth and these types of things, Agenda 21, the Great Reset. All of these things are technocracy under a different name, under a different marketing scheme. It's the same thing. So this concept of technocracy has been evolving, but it's not something that is different. It's just that it is evolving. It's changing, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same principles, and that is what we are trying to discover. What are these principles? What is this built on? What does this actually look like? And where are we headed given the current state of society? So with this evolution... It's partially due to the natural progression of a technological system, such as what was laid out by Theodore Kaczynski in Technological Slavery or Neil Postman in Technopoly, although I will give a disclaimer that Neil Postman uses the term technocracy specifically, but he uses it to reference a different concept. I'm not sure how or why. Maybe he thought he was making up the term and applied it differently. I don't know. But the concepts in Technopoly are about this natural progression of a technological system. You also have uh, Jacques Ellul in the Technological Society, who talks about similar things, about the evolution of a technological system, and there are many other authors. Those are the three that I like, that I have read, and that are very pertinent to this. So a a technological system itself will progress, it will evolve, it will grow, and there is a trend there that is uh, natural, so to say, put natural in quotes, it's not part of the natural order, so to say, this is all about the technical, and that is different than the natural, but you get the point here, just like in scientism, how they use the biological with the technological, it's a similar thing here. We are talking about the technological, even though it is all part of the same deal here. So some of this also fits in with various cyclical patterns in history and societies. This is similar to what I've covered in other podcast episodes, and you could look at The Fourth Turning and Sorokin and different people like that who have discussed this, as well as Van Armani, and definitely myself as well. We've talked about this a lot. So at the same time, Many of those in power have been slowly shifting society into this model behind the scenes. So you have these natural progressions of a technological system. 
You have these natural patterns and cycles in history and societies. And you also have these power players behind the scenes kind of shifting things and moving pieces and steering things in a certain direction. All of these things are happening. Because one is happening doesn't mean that the other the others are not happening. They are all happening at the same time. And they are all, again, pushing towards a similar endpoint. We can look at all these progressions and see where we're headed. Now, we've already looked at this progression of these cycles in history and cycles in society. That's something I've talked about a lot. I have not gotten as much into the progression of technological systems. Maybe that'll be a future series or a future season in this podcast. But what I do want to talk about now is this third aspect. So this would be the deliberate and very effective moves by those in power behind the scenes through more of a Fabian strategy of generational efforts and methodical progress. I've talked about the Fabians and the Fabian socialists and these groups and this strategy again in previous episodes, so I will not belabor that anymore. So with all of this, these behind-the-scenes efforts, which is what I want to focus on here, they've been spoken about openly by prominent figures, both in support as well as in warning on both sides of the aisle, so to say. They highlight the fact that the true power behind the state is in fact behind the state. It is not the state itself. The state is a legitimizing vehicle for control. Similarly to how I talked about how statism was a vehicle, a tool, something that can handle the enforcement aspects and the institutional aspects of technocracy, of this whole thing, and the other secular religions like Scientism, Church of Woke, these types handle different aspects of it, it is, um, that's kind of what we're talking about here, how the state is kind of a vehicle that is being used by other power players behind the scenes. This is the idea of what you might think of when you think of the deep state. That's something Trump kind of made popular and it's been more popular in the media in modern times, but it's a similar concept, I should say, similar. And so this is kind of like the spiritual aspects that the early church would have been talking about. You know how I talked about how they viewed the world as being under the control of the adversary, and it's not that the state of Rome or that the people involved in this immoral culture, that they were necessarily directly worshiping Satan. That's not really what they would have believed and what they thought. What they believed, though, was that behind the scenes, in an unseen way, there was this spiritual influence that was going on. This is similar to what we are talking about here, where we have these other ideological goals and workings that are largely unseen, but are very influential. And this is what I'm trying to draw out in this episode. Often this trend is viewed strictly from a materialistic, a secular perspective in circles such as conspiracy theorists and libertarians and radical progressives, but our perspective will be mostly to understand how to understand and apply some of the implications of this. I'm not just trying to point out the fact that there are real conspiracies or that corruption is something that exists within the state. That's not the goal of this. We're not looking at this strictly from a materialistic perspective. We're looking at some of the more immaterial aspects of this, similarly to how the church 
of um, the original church, at least, would have pointed out the spiritual influence over the world and over the things that were going on, both in the state and in the culture and in the institutions of their day. We want to be able to do the same thing. We want to know what is this ideology, what is this spiritual force, so to say, that is at work behind the scenes. We see that there is some common denominator behind all of these things. They are all steering in a certain direction. They are all working in concert to an extent towards a certain thing. And what is behind that? What is the ideology? Who are the players? What is the system? Where are we headed? These are the kinds of things that we want to know that I'm trying to uncover in this podcast. So that is the goal. So now I'll get into some of these quotes that I was referencing. Now, some of these I have used in previous episodes. I definitely used a lot of them in the corruption and conspiracy episodes uh, a lot. I, I used a few of these at least. And then some of these are brand new, but bringing them all together and pairing them together, especially in this context of technocracy and coming out of this idea of secular religions being used together and all orienting towards a singular goal and a singular system, and that would be technocracy. This gives a good overview of all of that as I get through all of these different quotes. So I'll start off with Edward Bernays, and this comes from his book Propaganda, quote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. So the next one, uh, next two actually come from President Woodrow Wilson, one of the most hated presidents of all time. And the first one is, quote, since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. The next from Woodrow Wilson as well, quote, We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of small groups of dominant men. We stand in the presence of a revolution, which will come in peaceful guise. And the next comes from another former president, President John F. Kennedy. Quote, 
The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our way of life is under attack. Those who make themselves our enemy are advancing around the globe. No war ever posed a greater threat to our security. If you are awaiting a finding of, quote, clear and present danger, then I can only say that the danger has never been more clear and its presence has never been more imminent. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, an infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. And again, that's President John Kennedy. And uh, I guess I can add a little bit of commentary here. He does talk about how this is an immaterial change. This is an infiltration, not an invasion. Subversion, not just open elections. It's intimidation, not free choice. He's talking about how this is something going on behind the scenes. The revolution is already here. It is already happening. And that was talked about by Woodrow Wilson as well. And so he's touching on a lot of these same things that we are talking about when talking about technocracy and what's behind it and uh, going from that perspective instead of a strictly materialistic perspective. The next quote comes from Edith Roosevelt, and this comes out of the Indianapolis News from December 23, 1961. Quote, and these are two separate quotes, and so I'll do both of them. Quote, The word establishment is a general term for the power elite in international finance, business, and professions, and government, largely from the Northeast, who wield most of the power regardless of who is in the White House. Most people are unaware of the existence of this legitimate mafia, yet the power of the establishment makes itself felt from the professor who seeks a foundation grant, to the candidate for a cabinet post or State Department job. It affects the nation's policies in almost every area. The next quote. What is the establishment's viewpoint? Through the Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy administrations, its ideology is constant, that the best way to fight communism is by a one-world socialist state, governed by, quote, experts like themselves. The result has been policies which favor the growth of the superstate, gradual surrender of United States sovereignty to the United Nations, and a steady retreat in the face of communist aggression. So she also talks about this ideology behind the scenes, steering us in a certain direction, ran governed by experts like themselves. 
Yes, this should sound familiar. Now, the next one, I particularly like this one. This comes from John Hyland, who was the 96th mayor of New York City. And this is from 1922. So keep that in mind. But he is talking about today as well here. So because, well, I should say, because it's the foundations of today, these are the seeds that grew into what we have today. Quote, The real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which like a giant octopus sprawls its slimy legs over our cities, states, and nation. To depart from mere generalizations, let me say that at the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil Interests, and a small group of powerful banking houses generally referred to as the international bankers. The little coterie of powerful international bankers virtually run the United States government for their own selfish purposes. They practically control both parties, write political platforms, make cat's paws of party leaders, use the leading men of private organizations, and resort to every device to place in nomination for a high public office only such candidates as will be amenable to the dictates of corrupt big business. These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of the newspapers and magazines in this country. They use the columns of these papers to club into submission or drive out of office public officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful corrupt cliques which compose the invisible government. It operates under cover of a self-created screen, seizes our executive officers, legislative bodies, schools, courts, newspapers, and every agency created for the public protection. So again, a similar concept there where something behind the scenes it's pushed through private hands and it is the one that actually controls the state it's not the state it's what's behind the state so the next one is a little longer this one comes from president dwight d eisenhower's farewell address and this one is from 1961 which is actually the same year that that Edith Roosevelt quote, or both of those quotes, came from. So he says, and I quote, Until the latest of our world's conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense, we have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, 
we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by the task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet, in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. So, yes, that very last sentence is the key there, to be alert of the danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It's warning of the technocracy. And the next bit is getting away from the presidents. And this first one is from H.G. Wells in his book, The Open Conspiracy. And this is actually three, I believe, different sections that I'll just read all together. I've paired them up so that they flow fairly well. This first part is where he's talking about the expansion of his idea of the world state in this open conspiracy. And so I'll insert the words, expansion will happen through, quote, the open conspiracy as consisting of a great multitude and variety of overlapping groups, but now all organized for collective political, social, and educational as well as propagandistic action. They will recognize each other much more clearly than they did at first, and they will have acquired a common name. The character of the open conspiracy will now be plainly displayed. It will have become a great world movement, as widespread and evident as socialism and communism. It will largely have taken the place of these movements. It will be more. It will be a world religion. This large, loose, assimilatory mass of groups and societies will be definitely and obviously attempting to swallow up the entire population of the world and become the new human community. 
the establishment of the economic world state by the deliberate invitation, explicit discussion, and cooperation of the men most interested in economic organization, men chosen by their work, called to it by a natural disposition and aptitude for it, fully aware of its importance and working with the support of an increasing general understanding. It is not a project to overthrow existing governments by insurrectionary attacks, but to supersede them by disregard. It does not want to destroy them or alter their forms, but to make them negligible by replacing their functions. It will respect them as far as it must. What is useful of them, it will use. What is useless, it will efface by its stronger reality. It will join issue only with what is plainly antagonistic and actively troublesome. The open conspiracy will appear first, I believe, as a conscious organization of intelligent and, in some cases, wealthy men, as a movement having distinct social and political aims, confessedly ignoring most of the existing apparatus of political control, or using it only as an incidental implement in the stages, a mere movement of a number of people in a certain direction who will presently discover, with a sort of surprise, the common object toward which they are all moving. In all sorts of ways, they will be influencing and controlling the ostensible government. Then this next quote is still H.G. Wells, but coming from The Salvaging of Civilization from 1921, it looks like. Quote, The world state must begin, it can only begin, as a propaganda cult, or as a group of propagandist cults, to which men and women must give themselves and their energies, regardless of the consequence to themselves. The activities of a cult which set itself to bring about the world state would at first be propagandistic, but would be intellectual and educational. And only as a sufficient mass of opinion and will had accumulated would they become, to a predominant extent, politically constructive. Such a cult must direct itself particularly to the teaching of the young. So, a few things to pull out of that. Number one, that very last thing is straight out of Plato, which I covered in a few, I guess, a few episodes ago. And then also he's talking about how this is a cult. A cult ran through propaganda, controlling a narrative. And yes, this is exactly what's going on in today's world. And in The Open Conspiracy, H.G. Wells talked about multiple other things. He talked about it being like religion. He talked about it being a worldwide movement that would be as predominant as socialism or communism. Think of something like sustainable development or wokeism, things of this nature, or how about the COVID-19 narrative? Things like this. And he talks about how, again, just like a lot of these other quotes— he says, quote, it's not a project to overthrow existing governments by insurrectionary attacks, but to supersede them by disregard. So again, it's not that he's wanting to overtake governments and create this world state through some sort of revolution or anything like this. It's something that's happening behind the scenes. It's something where men, largely men of wealth and intelligence, are doing things outside of the political system and at the same time are using the political system for their own aims. 
And as this is happening, the political system becomes more and more irrelevant. And this uh, kind of other system, this true government behind the scenes is what then takes over. He calls it the ostensible government. And yes, this is the idea of technocracy. It's also my personal strategy for going in the completely opposite direction. We as an alternative community that believe in voluntarism and things of this nature, we are not very satisfied with the current governments that are in control. But instead of rising up against them through direct rebellion, we pursue things such as agorism and the counter-economy and things of this nature, and in doing so, make the state less and less relevant and uh, basically supersede them by disregard, is how H.G. Wells puts it. Now I've got a few quotes that are directly related to technocracy, or actually directly talking about technocracy. The first is from the Technocrat magazine from 1938. Quote, Technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. So that's what technocracy is, at least according to the technocracy movement of the 1930s. It's a scientific ordeal, and it is seeking to control basically all goods and services, basically the entire economy, all the things that happen within the population, which could be the whole world, or it could be a continent, or however that gets uh, implemented. It depends on the size of the technate, but that they are going to handle all of this. It's not political, but they are going to handle everything related to society as far as resources, goods, services, these types of things are concerned. Now, there is another player that I've referenced multiple times before. This would be Zbigniew Brzezinski, and he was picked up by David Rockefeller and was a big steering force behind the scenes for implementing a lot of these technocratic things. Uh, my understanding is that Rockefeller read Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, and it intrigued him. He liked the way he talked and brought him in, funded him, and the uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski became a extremely influential figure in world politics, even bringing China into the technocratic state that it is today. That all started with Zbigniew Brzezinski. Now, in his book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era, he talks about technocracy in a sense. He doesn't call it technocracy, but he does talk about the technotronic era, and it's basically saying the same thing. So I've got two quotes here, and the first goes like this. Quote, The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. The next quote, In the technotronic society, the trend would seem to be towards the aggregation of the individual support of millions of uncoordinated citizens easily within the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities exploiting the latest communications techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. 
So let those sink in a little bit. Uh, Yeah, I probably could have just read those two and it summed up everything. But uh, what he's talking about is that society is going to be more and more controlled. It's going to be dominated by an elite. They are going to be unrestrained by traditional values. Again, this is the idea of scientism, of the Church of Woke, of statism. It's getting away from in the West, what would be Christian values is at least how that started, and getting into something different, something more objective, something more elite. Um, Again, you can go all the way back to Plato for this stuff. Talking about uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski talks about the technology and how you'll have up-to-date, complete files, even in personal information of all citizens. Yes, that currently happens, and it was not the case when he was writing this. He also talked about how millions would be steered by these magnetic and attractive personalities. Think influencers. That's what's happening. Think even just propaganda through advertising, but uh, done while, quote, exploiting the latest communications techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. Facebook's actually done studies on whether they can manipulate emotions, and yes, they were extremely successful in those studies. And so, uh, yes, all of this is currently happening. The next quote, uh, well, I guess I didn't realize it. I've got a few more quotes that uh, are also Zbigniew Brzezinski from the same book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. I didn't realize these were all the same. So let's continue with Brzezinski's thoughts. Quote, The nation-state, as a fundamental unit of man's organized life, has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concepts of the nation-state. Another quote, People, governments, and economies of all nations must serve the needs of multinational banks and corporations. And the final quote, Society would be dominated by an elite which would not hesitate to achieve its political ends by using the latest modern techniques for influencing public behavior and keeping society under close surveillance and control. That's basically a summary of the previous quotes, but yes, he's talking about the international banks, the multinational corporations. That's what I've been calling for all through season two was that the new technocracy, the new entity would come out of the corporate world that is international banks and multinational corporations. It would not be political, just like he says, far in advance of the political concepts of the nation state. The nation state dwindles, the technocracy rises. That is how things are playing out. I do have a few more quotes, but I'm just going to stop here. It's a decent stopping point, and the next quote is extremely long and more broad, so I will include that in the next episode uh, to give you a teaser. It is George Orwell who is commenting on James Burnham's The Managerial Revolution, and he might also reference the Machiavellians. Yes, he does. And that is something that Pete Quinones talks a lot about, the host of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, who was on, I don't know how many, half a dozen episodes or so ago, and we debated strategy pretty much. And so he talks a lot about the Machiavellians. It seems like a book that has really influenced him a lot. Well, we get to hear George Orwell talking about that author and even specifically referencing that book as well. 
But again, that's a really long quote. And then I've got two from Sorokin, the Russian sociologist that I've referenced many times in previous episodes as well. And then I will get into technocracy. So we've got a lot of the backdrop. We've got a lot of very famous and influential people talking about this concept. We've covered the background of the secular religion aspect that is coming into this, of the different groups that are behind the scenes kind of pushing for this on a more immaterial level or maybe a more spiritual level. Um, In previous episodes and seasons, especially season one in the Corruption and Conspiracy series, I do talk about a lot of this from a very materialistic perspective, talking about the Council on Foreign Relations, the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable groups, the Fabian Socialists and the Fabian Strategy, all of these kinds of things. Yes, I went into detail, covered quotes, all kinds of stuff. Um, I did that. And so now... I am being less material and getting more into the more immaterial, the more broad, the more macro, the basically what's going on behind the scenes, even within these groups that are behind the scenes. So what's behind these material groups and people? It's ideologies. It's secular religion. It is the shifting of culture, the shifting of history. These are the kinds of things I'm getting more into now. So with that in mind, I will again finish off these quotes, start talking about technocracy specifically, and then uh, I I guess I might get into, I'll probably do um, an overview. Uh, obviously, I have not figured this all out yet, so I'm figuring it out as I am speaking right now, but I'll probably do an overview of what the next few episodes will be, and I'm going to get into... The I, I guess the framework that I have made for possible future scenarios of how technocracy will likely play out, and that is something that I, I have done other episodes on before, but I at least intend to get in a lot more detail here. So I'll talk about these, and I've talked about the illusions of Machiavelli, Machiavelli's The Prince, Orwell's 1984, and the concept of a panopticon. And then I have this other set that come from Plato's Republic, Huxley's Brave New World, and the Foundation Universe by Isaac Asimov. And these both create these frameworks for basically technocracy and how that actually plays out. So I'll probably give an overview of that, which might be a bit of a recap to people that have been here for a while. But then I do plan on getting into each one of these illusions in a lot more detail than I have in past episodes. I kind of, I I believe, hit them fairly quickly earlier on and didn't get into a whole lot of detail with them. So I'll try to do that even more so now. And that is what is coming up and what will lead to the end of season three which should put us towards the end of the year and the time of holidays and such. And so that should be pretty good timing. So that's where we're going. Uh, I can stop this episode now and say thank you very much for all of your support, for ratings, reviews, for giving money, for giving feedback, all of these things. Thank you very much. Uh, Please follow on Twitter if you're into that. Please also leave a rating and review if you have not done that yet. And if there is anything you have questions about or you would like 
some of these quotes or some resources, references, anything like that, reach out to me and I can get those to you. I do have those, but I do not have the time or the will to yeah, deal with all of that. I would love to have detailed show notes with links and quotes and all kinds of stuff and a lot more resources and be a lot more up to date on the website. But just to be honest, I'm not. I don't make any money on this and that's just the way it is. I really appreciate the financial support so that I don't actually have to pay any money to make this podcast, but it, it's not a job for me. This is a side gig kind of a thing. And so I am not going to put that much time, extra time into it. I try to put a lot of time into making these episodes and making this podcast something that will be very beneficial and that you'll really like and that type of thing. And that's as far as I can take it right now. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.